thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on SpeechTherapyPD.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs. Keys to Evaluating and Treating Apraxia of Speech. I am your host, Mary Beth Hines. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Dr. Edith Strand's financial disclosures are that she is the developer of dynamic evaluation of motor speech skills and dynamic temporal and tactile cueing. She receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this presentation. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Our learning objectives for this episode are to identify key characteristics of childhood apraxia of speech, explain key factors in treating CAS versus other speech sound disorders, and describe principles of motor learning important to both adult and childhood apraxia of speech. As we have discussed in our mission, SpeechTherapyPD.com's mission for Keys for SLPs is to bring you a variety of presenters, including pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology. And today, we are honored to welcome our legendary guest, Dr. Edith Strand, Emeritus Speech-Language Pathologist in the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic and Emeritus Professor at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. Dr. Strand's research has focused on developmental, acquired, and progressive apraxia of speech and issues related to intelligibility and comprehensibility in degenerative dysarthria. She is an experienced clinician who has worked in the public schools, private practice, hospital, and clinical settings. Her primary clinical and research interests include assessment and treatment of children and adults with neurologic speech and language disorders. Dr. Strand's publications include many articles and book chapters related to motor speech disorders. She frequently gives lectures on the assessment and treatment of apraxia of speech in children and adults, management of dysarthria in degenerative neurological disease, and neuroanatomy. She is known for developing the assessment tool, Dynamic Evaluation of Motor Speech Skills in Children, or DE. MSS. She has also developed a treatment program for children with severe childhood apraxia of speech called Dynamic Temporal and Tactile Cueing, or DTC, for which research has demonstrated treatment efficacy. Dr. Strand is the co-author of the books Management of Speech and Swallowing in Degenerative Disease and Clinical Management of Motor Speech Disorders in Children and Adults. She is the co-editor of the book Clinical Management of Motor Speech Disorders in Children. Dr. Strand is an ASHA fellow and has been awarded honors of the Association of ASHA, honors of the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, and the Frank R. Kleffner Lifetime Clinical Career Award. Dr. Strand, we are so honored to have you on Keys for SLPs to discuss evaluating and treating apraxia of speech. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. As I told you before, when we decided to do this podcast, you were the first person on our list. So we're so happy that you're here tonight. All right. Well, will you tell us about your journey as an SLP and how your work in apraxia therapy has changed through the years? 
Wow. Yeah, that's kind of a long answer because <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. Uh, next April, I will have been a practicing speech pathologist for 50 years. So it's been a, a long journey. I started actually after I got my master's or even a few months before I actually got my master's, I started in the public schools and worked there for three years, at which point I really felt I wanted to do more in a medical setting. I had always been very interested in neurology. And although my master's program wasn't strong in that, I had been reading and going to as much continuing ed as I could. And um, so I went into private practice because in those days, uh, hospitals, in those days, most hospitals didn't hire speech pathologists. They contracted with PTOT and speech in those, in those days. So I signed a contract with a major hospital and a few over, over a few years with uh, skilled nursing facilities and those kinds of things. And uh, was able to work with uh, my first real apractic patients in that context. And at first I saw mostly adults, but as our practice grew, we started seeing children as well. And that's when I first came in contact with kids who uh, I believed had some sort of motor speech problem. Although childhood practice speech had been discussed in the literature, it was very new, very new. In fact, the first real article that made a big uh, difference to me was by Yawson Darley. And this was in the late seventies. And they were actually at the Mayo Clinic long, long before I ever thought I'd be there. And they did this wonderful discriminative analysis where they took a whole bunch of children who had come for evaluation of severe speech sound disorders. And in the, in the context of doing this discriminative analysis, we're able to identify a group of kids who had similar characteristics that were very different from the other kids. Well, lo and behold, all these years later, we see that those characteristics are very similar to the accepted characteristics today. So that's the beginning of all of this. Now, at that time, I was working just as a clinician, but frustrated because we really didn't have good treatment options for severe apraxia in the children. Now, in the adults, Jay Rosenbeck, who was at the VA later in Madison, Wisconsin, who was an amazing, is an amazing clinician and clinical researcher, had published an article um, called The Eight-Step Continuum in treating adult apraxia. And I had been seeing a lot of patients at the hospital with quite severe apraxia of speech. This is before the clot busters were out. And, and to be honest, the stroke patients were more severely communicatively impaired than, than, than they often are now. And I was frustrated. You know, I'd drive home. Why can't I help these people? And I just felt so inadequate. So I read this article right out of school and promised myself that I'd read an article a week so I'd keep up. I was reading this article on how to treat adult apraxia and I started using his ideas. And what I loved about the article and that I might talk about uh, later is something that I, I wish every clinician and clinical researcher would do was he told me why. He talked about the method and why it was relevant to this level of impairment, apraxia of speech. And so I used it with the adults. And as I got better at it, they were improving much better. So once I got over all those people I didn't help, I was on my way. And that was terrific. Now, at the same time, I start to get these kids with childhood apraxia, although they were never labeled that at the time. And I thought, well, they have similar characteristics. They look just like these adults. I'm going to use the same technique, but it didn't work. And I fretted over why does it work so well with adults until I realized adults had a long history of talking. They knew what talking felt like in their mouth. They had already established motor plans. They just weren't able to access and use them. Whereas the children had never spoken. They had no idea what that even felt like. And so over many, many years, mostly at the University of Washington and later at the Mayo Clinic, when I saw even more of these kids. I worked hard to develop a strategy that would work for the very severe kids. And that's how the DTTC came about. So this is a long-winded answer, but there was also a question that, re 
was a long-winded answer for a long-winded question. (laughs) So basically, you know, that's how the assessment tool that I developed and the treatment tool that I developed, both for children, came about, but not quickly and not really, never with the intention to publish or anything, just to help the children that were sitting across the table from me. So that's been a very long time, really long time. I'd say both of those took well over 15 years to develop. So how long were you, you were using that for 15 years before you published it? Or how long were you using it before you realized, I really have something here. I think I need to publish this. Well, I guess I started experimenting way back in private practice, but then I did a doctorate for four years and put aside that kind of thinking because I was, my dissertation was all in adults. And then my first big grant out of my doctoral program when I was an assistant professor was to look at the speech and voice characteristics that changed as a result degenerative dysarthria in patients with ALS. They, I was working in ALS clinics and they provided wonderful opportunity to do a study where we could use a person as their own control and really compare the changes in physiology with the changes in acoustics and perception. And that was a a big five-year NIH study. So I spent five years in studying degenerative dysarthria. And so then, by then I was at the University of Washington, a professor, but I can't stay out of the clinic. I'm just, I worked nine years before I did the doctorate. I spent every Friday with Jay Rosenbeck in the VA clinic. I'm always been in the clinic. So I would go into the university clinic often and help with the motor speech supervisors. But we were seeing more and more of these kids coming in that reminded me of the kids I'd seen in private practice. Now, by now, there was a little more written on childhood apraxia. But at that point in time, phonology had come into play. Okay. Now, before that, when Yosin and Darley wrote their article, there was no phonology. I didn't ever have phonology in school. There was no such thing. So I know that really dates me. But no, uh, that's why this is so interesting. It, it yeah. is re- it's really great to go back through history. History helps us understand where we've been and, and where the field's going to go. So down the line, people will be having conversations like this that you know yeah. what we're talking about today, you know, will, will be different than years years ahead. So please, so so tell. So there was no phonology. So there was, yeah, like, okay, I'm in school, there's no phonology. Phonology comes along and I go to ASHA. And so I'm sitting in on a short courses and talks and I'm learning about phonology and all, but I'm reading the CAS literature. We call it developmental apraxia at, that, at first. And I'm thinking they're talking about this disorder, these kids that I see from a linguistic perspective. And a lot of the early literature in CAS was really linguistically based. I mean, assessment, treatment, there was interpretation of data when they were comparing kids with other kids. When I'd look at the patient descriptions, which also were subject descriptions, participant descriptions, they weren't always really good. But when I had some, I could see that a lot of what they were reporting was linguistic. So I looked at that data kind of dubiously, although these were good researchers. I just think one advantage that I've had that I don't take lightly is if you're sitting across the tables from those kids every single day, you have an opportunity for like signal recognition kind of thing. You know, you have the opportunity to see a disorder in all of its heterogeneity. Whereas when you're doing, if you're primarily a researcher and don't spend a lot of time with the kids themselves and you're working from prior literature, it can be a little harder, I think. However, it's important to do that work. And there are many smart, good people, you know, that that have done that work and are continuing to do that work. But I think that was where I had a little bit of an advantage. So when did when did the focus change from a linguistic perspective to a motor speech perspective? Well, I think a big part of that turning point was I forget the year. I wish I had looked that up before we spoke. I didn't realize I'd be giving all this history. But in the 80s, at some point, Richard Schmidt, who is a cognitive motor learning theorist and researcher, 
came as an invited speaker to our biennial motor speech research and clinical conference. So it was speech scientists that worked in speech motor control and clinical researchers in dysarthria and apraxia. And it was, it still is, we still meet every other year. And it's a wonderful blending of how the two research strands work together for us to really understand what's going on with both kids and adults. So he came and talked about motor learning theory. And many of us hadn't really read that literature. I certainly hadn't. And it just opened my eyes to a whole nother world. So that was in February. And I spent the rest of that year and all summer reading as much as I could. I think I read three college textbooks. It's not, you know, they're undergrad. They're not that that hard. And read a lot of the, you know, basic research articles too, to understand what are they talking about? And I was so chagrined because here we're trying to help remediate speech problems from a motor learning perspective, because they have motor speech problems, but I didn't know anything about motor learning. So <laughs> after devouring that literature, and many of us did this, by the way, then more and more research was done applying those principles of motor learning to speech motor control problems. And so it's just blossomed since then. And over the last 20 years, especially, we've seen a big change in how we describe children with a proxy of speech, how we assess and how we treat. So I think that's been the biggest influence, that motor learning literature. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing. It's so interesting to to hear about where we've been and, and where we're going. So how is evaluation and treatment in general different for adult apraxia of speech versus childhood apraxia of speech? Right. First of all, let me talk about some similarities. Okay. Many people with apraxia of speech also have aphasia. So the way that's similar is that kids with apraxia of speech are trying to work out these motor programs and develop the phonology, which is being undermined by this motor speech problem. So they can't practice expressive language. So even though their receptive language might be okay, they're always going to be language delayed and they're always phonologically delayed due to the fact they have this motor speech problem. So in both cases, when you're assessing speech and looking as to determine whether or not there is a motor component to their speech disorder, you have to take into account the context of language and phonology that exists at the same time because they interact, of course. So in adult aphasia, we often have cognitive impairment and or language impairment, whether it's due to a stroke or head injury or whatever. And with kids, you're dealing with the development of phonology and language. So having to to put all those parts together and determine the relative contribution of motor impairment versus linguistic and or cognitive is challenging in in both cases. I think the way they're different is that people with apraxia, especially that aren't real, real severe, have and don't have a severe aphasia, we can use all modalities to help. So we can use writing and reading as well as, as talking and listening. Whereas with the kids, they aren't literate yet. So we're really just focused on the talking. Although that's another problem is we have to work on language development at the same time and phonologic development and how you do that gets, of course, tricky. So I think there's a lot of overlap, but of course the difference is that adults have already spoken They've already read, they've already written, their speech and language systems are well-developed and practiced. And our job in rehabilitation is to help them access that and use it. In kids, we're having to help them develop these motor plans from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. That involves a whole different approach. And that's why the eight-step continuum, I I believe, this is all just what I think, (laughs) that's why the eight-step continuum didn't work for the kids. I had to make it much more dynamic. And the development of DTTC happened because of this motor learning literature, especially Richard Smith's work about how motor learning occurs. That was very influential in in developing this over many years. (laughs) But I think that's how they're, they're different and the same. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. Okay, well, let's dive into the key characteristics of childhood apraxia of speech. 
Well, I'm going to tell you what seems to be the primary consensus. If you hold a whole bunch of speech pathologists, you'd get a million different answers probably. But for those of us that are clinicians who also do research, I think there's a good consensus now that you have to think about characteristics of apraxia from two perspectives. One is that they have many characteristics that are often seen, but they're not discriminative because kids with other types of speech sound disorders or even dysarthria will also have them. Then there's a group that seem to be more discriminative in that they occur much more in children with CAS than in any other speech disorder. So those that are like non-discriminative would be things like a reduced phonetic and phonemic inventory, very little speech. You might see numerous errors on an ARTIC test, poor intelligibility. All of those are seen in kids with CAS, but children who make all types of speech sound disorders might have numerous errors. Both a, a child with severe apraxia and a child with a severe phonologic impairment might get a standard score of 40 on a Goldman Fristo. But yet the nature of their impairment is very different. And how we need to treat those two kids is very, very different. At Mayo, we would get many children who were diagnosed with CAS somewhere and their parents came for a second opinion because of poor intelligibility. Well, they it came, they would come in and they're very unintelligible, but they just have severe phonologic patterns as well as some typical late developing sound errors. And so it made them unintelligible. So you can't use intelligibility as a discriminating factor might be present, but it's not discriminating. Those things that are more discriminating relate more to the movement that you see and hear. So awkward movement transitions, difficulty moving from one articulatory position to another, having difficulty getting to an initial articulatory position. You In CAS, you'll see numerous vowel and consonant distortions. So vowel distortions are not substitutions, they're distortions because the vocal tract shape is not quite right. And the one of the biggest issues is usually jaw height. So they might be trying hard and they'll go for hat, they might go hot. So it's not a hot and it's not at, it's in between because the jaw is just a little off in terms of jaw height, or they might be just a little off in terms of lip rounding or lip retraction or tongue tightness. All of those things can cause any, any one or mixture of those things will cause a vowel distortion. And if you think about difficult, what motor planning really is and motor programming, it makes sense that those are the kinds of errors these kids would make. We saw a lot of kids at Mayo diagnosed elsewhere with CAS whose speech sound substitutions were varied and many, but they were produced perfectly. So if they said tat for cat, there's no problem with the movement gesture for that initial bilabial voiceless plosive. There was no difficulty with the movement. And that's the issue in CAS. There has to be a problem with actual movement specification. So vowel consonant distortions, uh, you see groping and trial and error behavior. Interestingly, though, you won't see that in spontaneous speech because they just say what they can say. You only see that when you're doing a real motor speech exam and especially a dynamic motor speech exam, which is why the DEMS came about, because we weren't doing any dynamic assessment in motor speech disorders. And that's where you'll see some of these behaviors. They'll also, kids with CAS have difficulty with prosody. Oh, I want to give another example of a consonant distortion. Lots of times people ask me, well, really, what is that? Well, when children with CAS, if you ask them to say man, they might say something in between ma'am and bam, because they can't quite program just the right labial motor unit recruitment to get just the right tension. And so it sounds like in between an M and a B, that's a distortion. It can be that they're just a little off target in placement. It's not a substitution because they aren't at the right placement for a different sound, 
they are in a placement that isn't associated with any English phoneme. So those are distortions. CAS kids are known to have trouble with prosody. The most common prosodic error that I see in children with CAS is segmentation. Pup, B, hap, B. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes with equal stress, but the segmentation is the most common. Sometimes there are lexical stress errors like happy instead of happy, bunny instead of bunny. So you see that much more often in children with apraxia of speech than with other speech sound disorders. Intrusive schwa. You can see that in the middle of a word, like if they want to say bike, they might go bayak. So they add a little uh. But more often you see it at the end of the word, beda, basa. And those add a whole syllable <laughs> in connected speech, and it really affects intelligibility. So we have to really work hard to, to treat those. You don't see that in kids that typically that just have phonologic problems. So constant distortions, vowel distortions, intrusive schwa, prosodic problems. I do want to comment on another <laughs> characteristic that's often considered to be essential for CAS. And I'm going to argue that it's present for sure, but it's not necessarily discriminative. Okay. And that's inconsistency. And unfortunately, in the it's getting very old now. I think it's 2007 position paper by ASHA stated, you know, that this difficulty with, with movement trajectories, and which was great, and the dysprosody, and then inconsistency was the third big one. Here's the problem, in my view, with consistency as being discriminative. I, I just don't believe it is because kids who are very, very severely apractic aren't very inconsistent because they can't do much. Kids who have phonologic impairment, especially that are in therapy and are starting to generalize a new sound, are very inconsistent. In fact, the other reason people would send children to Mayo, besides really poor intelligibility, was inconsistency. Oh, they're very inconsistent and they're unintelligible, so they may be a practice. And in every case, that those were their two two characteristics upon which they diagnosed the child, and it was just totally wrong. So in my view, and I would just encourage speech pathologists that are, might be listening to think about this, that we know that kids with apraxia are quite inconsistent, especially on repeated trials of the same word. But consistency or inconsistency alone is can't discriminate the, the child from someone who doesn't have a practice of speech. It's present for sure, but in my view, not always discriminative. In fact, there's a, you know, Barbara Dodd has her whole list of uh, different types of speech sound disorders. And there's a whole category of inconsistent speech sound disorder. So some of those kids are very, those that, that's a group of children who are very inconsistent, but not necessarily have CAS. So, you know, I'm not sure how many people would uh, agree with me about this, but I, I, if if I see a lot of inconsistency, I certainly note it. But in my mind, it's not a discriminative characteristic. It, it's present, but not discriminative. You have to look at the whole kind of picture, and unless the child has at least some vowel consonant distortions and a couple other of these characteristics that I've talked about, it's hard to really diagnose them with, with CAS. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for that distinction. I think inconsistency is often up there along with the other characteristics. Can you talk a little bit about prosody and segmentation for CAS that, you know, you also will find prosody with other speech sound disorders in children? You do. You do. I think that's why I kind of emphasize that the dysprosody you see is fairly consistent across kids with CAS, this type of segmentation that tends to have, they aren't necessarily monotonal, but it's, it's less prosodic. All of their speech sounds a little more robotic and a little more staccato, maybe. Not all children with CAS. 
But of course, all children with CAS don't have all characteristics. That's the deal. You know, it's like many of the things that we, when there's no biomarker that you have, you know, you have a list of characteristics and we say the child has to have so many out of this list to be considered that disorder. Even even medical diagnoses, there are some that there aren't biomarkers like Parkinson's disease. And so the neurologist says, well, they have mass space, they have reduced arm swing, they have resting tremor, they have this, that. And then they look at how many of those characteristics they see. And if there's enough of that, plus the medical history, you make a judgment that this person has Parkinson's. We do the same thing with our with most of our speech sound disorders because we don't have biomarkers for them. Now this prosody thing gets, to go back to your original question, gets a little confusing because there are children on the spectrum sometimes who come with somewhat robotic speech or very little speech that also have prosody problems. So I think prosody is an important and perhaps discriminative characteristic if you're just comparing straight phonologic impairment or residual articulars with CAS, then it's pretty discriminative because you don't see a lot of prosodic problems in the kids that have final consonant omission, fronting, cluster mm-hmm. reduction. Usually their, their prosody is pretty, pretty good. But I, I do know that sometimes we see kids with other issues that sometimes also have prosodic problems. It's differential diagnosis is challenging But it's one of the funnest, I mean, that's what keeps us thinking and growing and learning in our field is how are we going to discriminate among these? And to remember that we don't discriminate among these different labels just to have labels. We do it so that we're focusing our treatment on the nature of the impairment. And especially in terms of, are we going to take a more linguistic approach or are we going to take a more motoric approach? It's it's really quite important, obviously. So, Well, definitely. And that is a great segue to our next question, Dr. Strand. <laughs> <laughs> what are the key factors in treating CAS that differ from other speech sound disorders? Well, that's a complicated question and answer too. And, and we had talked before this podcast and you said you might be asking me that. So I've been doing more specific thinking. When I'm giving a course on this, I talk about the differences in approaching treatment for CAS. So I'll talk about things like above everything, you have to bring in these principles of motor learning, which I think that we'll, we'll likely talk about later. But also we want to think about the fact that when we're treating a motor speech disorder, we have to tune our ear and eyes to this idea of movement. So the focus is on movement, not the phoneme. And this is a paradigmatic shift that is really hard for clinicians to make. And I've learned this giving courses here and in all over, all over <laughs> Australia, <laughs> Europe, we're, they're all, all of us, all of us SOPs are in the same boat. We're so used to sound production. We're so used to phonology. We're so used to treating and talking about sounds that it's very hard to focus on the movement. For example, I know that you're recording this and that most people can't see me, but if you, to sort of exemplify what I mean, if a child says boo versus B, I always ask people to watch me say it and then you say it and think about or even look in the mirror, watch boo. Boo. Now watch me say B. B. The movement doesn't even start in the same place. It's totally different for the same phoneme. And when we treat people who have a movement disorder, we have to think about the movement and the co-articulatory effects, or think about the movement in the context of co-articulation. And it's that movement at the level of the syllable that we're treating, not the phoneme. And that changes everything. It changes how you choose your stimuli. It changes the kind of feedback you give. It literally changes everything. It changes the type of cueing that you do. But because the goal of treatment in CAS is to improve that child's, in my view, (laughs) the goal in treating CAS 
is to help that child develop the capability for assembling motor plans, motor programs, and then being able to habituate them so they don't have to use so much conscious effort. That's what we're doing when we treat CAS. We are not working to develop their phonologic repertoire. Those are two really different things. Now, the problem is many of the kids we see have both, of course. But what we find is that if their CAS has undermined their ability to develop phonology as we work through the motor programming issues and they get better at that, the phonology starts to come. So we, especially with the more severe children, we have to work on the the movement first. So the other things that are important in treating CAS because it's a motor problem, and all this comes from the motor learning literature, is you have to get enough practice. So you have to maximize practice trials per session. Well, how are you gonna do that? Well, you get rid of all these games that take forever. You don't get one response and then let them take a turn, spin a wheel. Oh, it falls on the floor. You got to pick it up. I have watched session after session of people send me videos and they're out of a 20 minute session. There might be 10 minutes where they're actually practicing. And that happens over and over and over again. So we we talk about, you know, it's really necessary in 20 minutes, you're going to easily get hundreds of practice trials. And those are cued practice trials. The other thing we see sometimes in phonology is just, and I've done this myself, you know, before I really learned the motor learning literature, where they might practice at home and, and the parent has a sheet of pictures. And so the child's practicing, you know, maybe they're a fronter. So they're practicing cake and, you know, key and come, and they're going tape and tea and tum. And mom's saying, yep, you're practicing, you're practicing. Not quite, that's too bad. You're practicing where they're practicing the wrong thing. And in treating a praxis, we don't let that happen. You go in right, as soon as they're wrong, you go in and you add cueing, you slow it way down, you add a tactile cue. This is all, you know, I'm not going to go in at this point to all the the different cueing techniques for CAS, but you have to maximize your practice trials per session. I think the other thing that's different is how you, you create your stimuli. When I worked on sound level errors years ago in the schools and even in my private practice before I knew what I know now, I'd go to my closet and take out my S cards and my box of, you know, TH cards or my box of R cards or whatever. And we'd work on that sound. I just pulled out whatever pictures were there. Well, that worked fine for kids that had those specific sound problems. But for kids with apraxia, we're not working on sounds, are we? We're working on remediating the movement, right? So I will pick stimuli, including vowels that they distort, and create a smaller list of stimuli for very severe kids, maybe only five. If they're not quite that severe, maybe seven, eight. And you practice each one of those each session with your model, their response, and then their cues. And I think I gave you some references, an article on DTTC, which goes into all of these. Did I do that with you, Mary Beth? Yes, you did. Uh, You gave me a list of references and we will have those. We can put those as a handout to this course as an an attachment. So people can get those. The other, I think, issues related to treatment that are different when you bring in principles of motor learning is one is how are you going to organize your treatment? Are you going to just do one word, one trial at a time like mom? No. Up. Or are you going to stay with one word for about 20 tries, the cute tries? That's called blocked practice. And when we treat motor speech disorders, we use blocked practice and then move as they improve to more random practice. And the reasons and rationale for all that are explained in the DTTC article and in the motor learning articles. So I think how you organize practice makes a difference. And the kind and when you give feedback makes a difference. So all of those things are important to motor learning and therefore really emphasized when you treat CAS. Having said all that, I will tell you all of those principles are just as important if you've got a real recalcitrant R or L or something like that 
you introduce all these principles of motor learning and the efficiency of treatment and the speed with which the child acquires that one sound really fast, much faster than if you do other approaches. Well, let's dive into the principles of motor learning then. All right. Well, there are many that you'll read about. I have focused on three in particular. Well, maximizing practice trials per session is a given, so to speak. I mean, that is something you just have to do. It's a basic principle. In order to learn motor skill, you have to practice the movement. So maximizing those practice trials is huge. Another second thing I learned from the motor learning literature that I had never thought about is that the child or adult, both adults and kids, have to have the intent to improve movement accuracy. And I thought about that for a long time. And I thought, well, am I I doing that? And I thought, no, because they come in and say, okay, we're going to work on speech. Or with the kids, they say, okay, we're going to work on talking. We're going to work on your sounds. Now, since reading that, oh, and they had some really good research where they actually studied this. Whether they, you know, said, well, we're going to get the ball in the hoop versus, no, we're going to work on doing this with your knees and this with your arms. and this, this, this. So they talked about intent to improve a particular aspect of movement, not the goal. Okay. So I started telling kids, okay, we're going to work on moving so we can talk better. And we even did little warm-ups, just 30 seconds, just to draw their attention and effort to the feel of movement. Oh, your lips are round. Oh, your mouth isn't open very wide. Oh, let's make it big. Now let's make it little. Let's move fast. Let's move slow. All of these kinds of parameters of movement that we're going to use when we're cueing during treatment. So <laughs> it really changed the way I talked to children about it. And interestingly, they really get it. So, for example, the clinical assistants that would room the patients at Mayo Clinic, some, one day she's walking this little guy in and she says, what are you going to do in speech today? And he looks right at her and she, he says, we work on moving. So I can no. <laughs> And so that's they, great. Yeah, they get this sense of it's all about how they move things. And then in the feedback, which, oh, make it smaller, make it bigger, oh, make it tighter, make your lips round. Your feedback has a lot to do with the movement pattern. Not the, oh, I heard a ka do a da. You know? Yes. You ever say that particular sentence, but you know what I mean? Well, and they can also feel more successful because they're working on the movement, even if the production isn't perfect. Exactly. I can say, oh, that was so close because you got your lips more round. Now let's move our jaw more. And it does give them this sense of working toward something rather than just right or wrong. So it's sort of like the old idea of progressive approximation, really. Only we're doing it from the context of movement and at the whole syllable level, because you never stop. I I, I guess the other principle, there's several more principles, but one thing that comes into play here is this idea of in treating speech sound disorders, we frequently will separate the sound from the rest of the syllable. Like, Oi. It's a oi. It's a oi. And literally, I've had kids with apraxia come in who've had this kind of therapy going oi, oi. Or they'll go, every single thing they, they say, what is this? Well, it's a gun. What is this? It's a book. Or they'll go b b ook. And then I have to extinguish that so we can work on the right movement book at the level of the syllable. So now if you have a child with a proxy of speech, I guess one of the very few things you can actually do wrong or go backwards is to separate the sound because you have to work on the movement gesture for a syllable as a whole. So for the principles of motor learning, we've talked about having the child or adult have the intent to improve movement, maximize your practice trials per session. And then another real important principle of motor learning is how you organize practice. And this goes to this principle of motor learning of random versus blocked practice. 
So random practice is just as the word says. You practice each item that you're working on randomly throughout the session one time each. Blocked practice is you take a particular target and you practice it a number of times in a row, cueing each time so that they get closer and closer to the accurate movement gesture for that word or syllable. Within this blocked versus random, (laughs) there's another issue though that's confusing to people at first and important. So when you read the motor learning literature, which interestingly occurred with adults who were typical people without any impairment and typically were studied with very simple movement, like moving a lever from one position to another or throwing a beanbag to different targets. Okay. Very simple tasks. Well, in that research, it shows that if you do random practice, the retention is better. If you do blocked practice, the retention is worse. So I'm realizing as I'm doing this work with these kids that random practice is ridiculous because we never got any accuracy. So I was frustrated. I was doing block practice with them because that was the only way I could get them accurate. But I was worried about it because the literature told me to do random for retention. Well, then I luckily ran into Gabby Wolf, who is, uh, I think she's from Germany or Austria. She is another wonderful motor learning researcher. And she published some articles that talked about the fact that in kids, in children, it's different. And with more complex movement, it's different. Well, we've got kids doing the most complex movement there is. So in her research, she came to the conclusion that you have to start with black blocked practice, but to really also assure retention, maintenance, you have to move to random practice before you're done with that target or set of targets. So that's this is what I mean about DTTC taking 15 years. Every time I'd read something else or learn something else or go to another course or conference, I would say, oh, well, I should bring that in this way then, you know? So then we changed to, I changed DTTC to where you start with real block practice. And then within each target, as it gets more accurate, you reduce the length of the blocks, the frequency of the blocks until you're doing it random. And then you can go out of training. So this block to random practice is a principle of motor learning that I have found to be really important in treating kids with CAS. And then the last principle that I think is really important is this idea of feedback. Now, as SLPs, we all learned that if feedback's important, we need to give feedback to both our adult patients and and the kids, right? What I didn't understand until I read the motor learning literature is that there's a difference in kinds of feedback. So you can give feedback that's very specific. Close your mouth a little. Oh, too tight. Oh, no, open your jaw a little more. Oh, let me see you around your lips. So you're giving tactile feedback. You're giving verbal feedback. But it's very specific to what they need to do a little differently to get closer to the movement accuracy. So you get the accurate acoustic result. So I started adding that in and it made a difference. It's like, why didn't I think of that? You know, so so then I started going to give more specific feedback, but they caution you not to do that too long because you have to fade feedback as soon as you can so they aren't relying on it. Otherwise, it really takes a long time for the actual acquisition phase to occur. So the acquisition phase is when they actually learn and set down, if you will, this motor program. And then the continued practice makes it more habitual. So they don't have to think so hard about it. It can be more automatic, like for you and I. So you start with very specific feedback, fade it to then what we call knowledge of results. So you'd say, oh, good, or not quite. Can you fix it? And in each case, you're moving from specific to just right or wrong. And in each case, you're also reducing the frequency with which you're giving that 
feedback, especially with the right or wrong, until they're attuned themselves and start self-correcting. So the feedback is is the last part. So I'd say the, the ones that I have included in DTTC and kept there, believe me, I've tried a lot of them, that seem to make the most difference. Draw their attention to the feel of movement and the intent to improve movement. Maximize your practice trials per session. Get away any games and pictures that take their attention away from your face because we have learned that the most salient cue is them watching your movement, not in the mirror, watching your movement. So when they look in the mirror, they're looking at everything they've got going and they're not, or they're watching their own wrong movement. So to the degree you can, I always know there are kids that won't watch your face. And, you know, we're, we're clinicians. We know how to deal with that. Progressive desensitization, use the mirror if you have to at first, but try to do whatever you can to get them acclimated to looking at your face because that's the most salient cue. So then the organization of practice and the feedback. So those are, I think, the five most important that, that I've included in DTTC that I have seen the most results from. Thank you for sharing those. And um, speaking of practice, that brings me to talk about home practice with children with apraxia of speech. So what what is your theory, philosophy? What what is your what is your practice in that area? What what is your protocol that you use? Yeah, but that's changed over time due to experience and learning things the hard way. Like most all everything I've published has, you know, I've learned the hard way. <laughs> and been tried and tested. It's just very hard if you're in the public schools. The only way you can decide whether or not to have the child practice at home is the parent has to come in, watch you, and then you need to watch the parent do what you want them to do, especially early on, and especially with the more severe kids. Otherwise, what's happening at home is negative practice, and that's just going to set you backwards. So I was very fortunate at Mayo, and those of you that might be in private practice might have, will have an easier time with this as well, where the parent can be there. Now, sometimes the parents aren't very good at, or the the child isn't as cooperative when the parent's in the room. That, That happens a lot. I didn't know, I thought that was just a therapy thing, but now I have grandchildren and they're like (laughs) angels with me. And as soon as their parents come in the room, they they like turn into different people. It's like, what are you doing? What is the, what did you? So I guess this is just a, a phenomenon. So I have the parent watch through a camera, you know, with their iPad and all. It's you can set those up usually now with Zoom. It's real easy. Just have them sit in the waiting room and watch. But then at the end, you have to decide what can they do. So let's say there's a child that's really not into this yet. He doesn't really get a lot of this movement stuff. I'll have the parent work on having them imitate big, little, fast, slow, tight, loose. And we start with the arms because they're easier to see and you can do games out of them. Simon says, make your arms big. Simon says, make your arms little. They'll really have a hard time with moving their arms just a little bit out of their body and then back. So you take their little hands and you do it for them. And I demonstrate this for the parent. And then they practice that at home and then they go from the arms to the hands. And then finally, you can do the jaw, big, little, fast, slow, that kind of thing. Once you start really, they're into it, they can watch you, they can attempt direct imitation, then you're set to jet and we'll start working. Now, if the child isn't even close to an accurate movement gesture for a target yet, I don't have the parent do anything because it's just, this is very difficult kind of therapy. You have to really, you have to be able to really hear it. You have to be able to know when to cue, how to cue. And clinicians have a lot of training in that so that they would really understand how to do that once reading, you know, a a manual or article. But parents, not so much. Once they get closer to the target, then I'll have the parent come in and have them watch what the child's doing. And they've been watching me do therapy too. So their ears getting better. And then whatever I'm going to have them do at home, maybe I'm going to have them practice in direct imitation. So maybe it's um, bunny and happy and bike and maybe nope. And they're going to practice those four words or so in direct imitation, say 20 times each. I want to make sure if there's an error, that parent knows how to cue it. 
given where we are in therapy. So I will demonstrate and then they will try it and I will watch. And if they're not allowing negative practice, I ask them to do that at home. If they are, I, I say, well, let's wait a little bit. Well, he's doing really good here. We can wait a little bit for the home practice. So it's a hard to answer that question. It varies with every child, every parent, where we are in the therapy. But I try to involve home practice as much as I can, as soon as I can. But I do everything I can to avoid any negative practice. And that's kind of tough. So that, that is tough. Well, thank you for sharing that. And with practice in general, again, it depends upon the child. But what is the maximum number of minutes that you would suggest? Well, the more severe the child, the more often is better. Shorter sessions more often, which is really tough for many private practice and hospital clinics where maybe the family has to drive an hour. You know, the best is a half hour, four or five days a week. That's the best. That's not often possible. Some of our research in intensive therapy, we had the kids come half hour twice a day, five days a week for six weeks. And these were nonverbal kids, but with low average to normal intelligence, no significant craniofacial problems or anything like that. But they came that that's a lot of therapy, right? So that's, let's see, five times two is 10 times 60 sessions. But they went from nonverbal to having some of the kids got to phrase love. Wow. Yeah. Because we were, they were using a phonologic approach back home that they weren't making any progress. They'd been in therapy one to three years with no progress, or they weren't even working on speech. They had them just doing AAC and blowing whistles and doing these things with pulling on their <laughs> one kid had taped his mouth or something. I don't know. Lots of things that weren't working on speech. And the parent was desperate and uh, brought them to Mayo. And we put them in these intensive situations just to see if you do intensive therapy, would that make a difference? And it made all the difference. Now that's not possible for most families. So one of the very few, but very good things that has come out of COVID is Zoom therapy. Now I will tell you, I'm very chagrined to say this, but I'm always pretty honest about when I'm dumb. I just would have told you, you could never do Zoom therapy within a practice. <laughs> and I had to eat those words because we haven't been able to do that. Now, I will say the kids that are real squirrely, they're tough. And if the parent is really good at motivating and being there and keeping them on the chair and what all, we can do it. Not great. You can't use tactile cueing. It's not the best therapy. But what we're doing at the university now is I volunteer there and help the motor speech supervisors. We're having the kids that live, you know, more than an hour away come once a week or once every other week. And then we do two or two sessions or one extra session a week so that we can see them at least three times a week. Now, that's after doing some parent training as well. So they can help us with some of the cueing. We feel more confident in them doing some practice at home. Mm -hmm. But that has been helpful. And that's a situation for lots of people around the country where, and, and certainly like I do a lot of coaching and teaching in Britain, and there's long distances sometimes for some of these kids that live way outside of London or wherever. And so this is a tool we can use, but it takes a lot of work and you have to really watch what the parents are doing and keep careful track of, of how things are going, but that, that can help. So for the more severe kids, shorter, more frequent sessions is really what you, what you want to do in the schools. It's really tough having been there and often talking with school speech pathologists, you know, they're really charged with helping that child's speech and language in the context of their education and acquiring literacy and all. And so the actual idea of speech improvement isn't the primary job. So they'll have to use AAC or something where they can get the child working in the classroom, you know, now, and that's, that's their charge. That's what they need to do. So it's hard to find time to also see those kids for one-on-one -on -one therapy for one thing, because they're often in groups, with the 
intensity that they need. So we talk a lot about pairing public school therapy with either a private clinic, if they have insurance, or if they can find a university clinic where it's a sliding scale or at the UW, it's free. That can sometimes be helpful too. So it's sort of like you just got to figure out how how you can do your best possible job at getting you know more intensive therapy, especially for the kids that are pretty significantly a practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no, unfortunately, there's no magic. No. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your insight. One one thing I really like about you, Dr. Strand, is and, and it's so helpful for clinicians, is you're willing to say, I did something and it, it worked, or I did something and it, it didn't work. And so I changed. And it's so oh, important to, to just keep changing. Absolutely. You know, if I could just wax older person here for a moment, if you're a younger, especially a younger clinician listening or any clinician, I think I want to encourage you to really listen to the people you're seeing, listen to the kids, listen to the adults. They will teach you. They'll help you hone our craft. Watch them. Really listen to them. How are they responding? What what's working better than something else? Mix it up because they will they will really teach us. And the other thing is to use your village. You know, it's okay to say you don't know something. You're not sure about something. Call another speech pathologist, maybe someone who has more experience than you, maybe not. Just putting two heads together often works to to come up with ideas that you wouldn't on your own. Certainly that's been true for me. When I was at Mayo, I called people all over all the time because we were generalists. We saw everything. So if I had a child with severe autism come in, I don't do research in that area. I have a very good friend and colleague who specializes in that. I'd be on the phone right after that child left, asking lots of questions, getting more references. If a child came in with a severe stutter, I've seen lots of stutters over the year, but maybe this one was really confusing me. I'd call Barry Guitar, who I taught with in Vermont. Barry, all right, this is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm seeing. Help me. Joe Duffy was down the hall. Joe would come to my office. The first time that happened, I thought that something's wrong with the universe, you know, and Joe would say, (laughs) I'm not sure. A good clinician will always say, I'm not sure, because it's hard what we do. It's really a challenging, if, of course, rewarding profession. We've got kids, adults, we've got all these problems. We've got speech, language, cognition, all interacting. It's it's hard. And don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to say, I'm not sure. Well, thank you. That's very encouraging coming from you. So we really appreciate it. We have a time for a few questions and some have been put into the chat. So first of all, we got lots of comments that this is a wonderful session and thanking you. So again, thank you, Dr. Strand. So the first question, would prompt therapy be valuable for CAS? Prompt is probably the best known um, program for treating CAS. I have not been successful with it with very severe children. I think I have seen people be successful with it with kids that had a little more speech to begin with and that were very tolerant of all the tactile cueing. The one thing I would say with prompt, and I know with their workshops, they've been adding some of this more recently, but if if you're using prompt, you still want to think about organizing practice. How are you going to organize practice? Are you going to do it blocked to random? You know, that's important. How are you providing feedback? It's important. And I, I'm not sure how the cues are faded in prompt at this point in time. It used to be that they weren't faded as much as the motor learning people would, I think, suggest. So when you're using your prompt, you know, how quickly do you fade them? My suggestion would be use the prompt, but then you know, fade it as soon as, as you can. People have asked me, can I use prompt for the tactile cueing in DTTC? Of course. I don't specify the cues to use in DTTC because I want each clinician to think through what's the least you can do tactilely to get them to make that accurate movement gesture. And I would encourage, and prompt does focus on not just the, the sound, it also focuses on, on movement. So I, and it comes from a good motor perspective as well. So in my hands, the real severe kids do better with DTTC, but other people, I think prompt is, is successful with many kids. Okay, thank you. Okay, here's another question. Have you ever had a case who had accurate vowel productions 
or at least some accurate bowel productions, but had apraxia and prosody problems, especially segmentation. Yeah, well, I I don't know that I've ever seen one that had absolutely no valve distortions. Trying to think, I don't I don't think so, but certainly they might they might be mild, but I don't think I've ever seen one that had no valve distortions. Segmentation and what was the other thing they had? Prosody problems, especially segmentation. Especially segmentation. Yeah. Well, if there were no consonant distortions and no vowel distortions, and mostly what you saw was segmentation, that alone wouldn't lend itself to the label for me. But what you, I think, need to do is, before you can even decide that, is in what context is that all you see? If it's just conversational speech or a single word or tick test, you just still don't know enough. So you really need to do some dynamic assessment. So you, you don't have to buy the dems. You can look up a list of words that increase in length and phonetic complexity and see how the child does with that and how they do with cueing. That's that's probably what I do next to figure that out. Okay. Thank you. And we are just about out of time here. And I know you have some other events this evening, so we don't want to keep you. We did have a comment that said an hour was too short of time with Dr. Strand. Thank you for your time. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And thank you from everyone at Keys for SLPs and SpeechTherapyPD.com. We really appreciate you coming and sharing your expertise and insight and honesty and a little history. Well, I appreciated being here. It was fun speaking with you all. Well, thank you very much. And we hope to see you soon. And we have one last comment. Thank you, Dr. Strand. I first heard you speak nearly 20 years ago and have been following you ever since. And another one says workshops for DTTC. Well, we do give those, by the by. Go to the website, childapraxiatreatment.org. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Strand. Thank you to all of our participants. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.